0: Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. There were many stars in Hollywood in the 40s, but only one queen of technicolor. That was Maria Montez. And my guest, Tom Zimmerman, has written the first book-length biography of this cultural icon, The Queen of Technicolor, Maria Montez in Hollywood, is published by the University Press of Kentucky and available at Amazon and all the usual places. Tom, welcome to the show.
1: Oh, thank you very much.
0: Why did you decide to focus on Maria Montez as opposed to so many other stars of that era? Years ago,
1: uh, it was published actually in 1998. I did a book with the son of Ray Jones. Ray Jones was the chief portrait photographer for Universal Studios. And we looked at all these photos that his dad had done, uh, John Jones is the man's name, And the ones, at least to me, that really stood out were of this obscure actress, Maria Montez. I'd vaguely heard of her, I think because of Cobra Woman, but she was just fascinating to me. And the more I looked into her, it was completely bizarre that she ever did walk-ons, let alone became a bona fide star. She could not act, sing, or dance. (laughs) And on top of it, as I see on the cake, she had this huge accent and she's she's there's quotes from her that says, you know, I can't understand what I say. <laughs> I, I mean, it was a significant accent, but somehow or other for only about three or four years. But for those three or four years, she becomes a bona fide American movie star. And it just fascinated me. And I wanted to figure out why. the why is obvious. She was fantastically gorgeous. And it was that weird thing. I've been a photographer forever. And some people register like crazy on film. And other people don't. And no one can figure out why. It has no really not much to do with how good or bad you look. But some people register on film and some simply don't. And man alive, did she register on film? Woof. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, I, you, there, there's got to be a story. How did she get where she got? Yeah,
0: exactly. No, exactly. Once you decided to focus on her, how did you go about your research? Because again, this goes back quite a few decades. Were you able to find material in libraries, talk to people who knew people? How did all that get put together by you?
1: Well, regrettably, by the time I started doing, which was about 15 years ago, this was not, you know, just a couple of weeks and I got intrigued by it. There weren't that many people to talk to. John Jones, his father, Ray, it was long since passed. And he could have told me a million things about, you know, photographing her and so on. It turns out, right down the street and around the corner from me on the way to the freeway here in Los Angeles, there's a old folks kind of hospital thing. And in that hospital was Maria's best friend. Of course, I find this out long after she's passed, but she was the best buddy. But I talked to a guy that interviewed her and he told me a bunch of stuff. And the really key thing he told me is that she Elizabeth Russell is her name. She had written a screenplay about her buddy Maria. Well, it was nowhere to be found. I looked all over the place, looked on the internet, went to the Motion Picture Arts and Science Library over on Olympic, uh, and it was just nowhere to be found. And the librarian at the Motion Picture Arts and Science says, Check the uh, Library of Congress. Maybe she copyrighted it. And in fact, she did copyright it. So the one copy apparently left in the known universe was in DC at the Library of Congress. And if she had copyrighted it, I think it was after 1979 or 80, something like that, before it rather, they could have Xeroxed it and sent me a copy. Alas, she did not, so I had to fly back to D.C. to read the thing. I tell you, it was worth it, because it is the absolutely only document that really is devoted to her. She didn't leave any papers. She wrote constantly to her husband during the war who was overseas, and none of those letters seemed to uh, be uh, in existence. I talked to her niece, uh, Raina Paris, who was the daughter of Maria's youngest sister, but she died way before uh Raina Paris was was born. So she didn't know much of anything about her. I knew all ten, 10 times more than she did. But she could tell me about the family. So that was those were about the only kind of direct things. And my friend John Jones, Ray Jones is the photographer's son, actually sat on her lap. Amazing. <laughs> she, He would help his dad, you know, he's like five, six, seven years old. He'd help his dad in the studio, you know, moving stuff around, whatever, just hanging out with his dad. And one day Maria Montez walks in and he was about seven years old, maybe eight. And he was just floored. He's And this, he's telling me this, like, you know, a half a century later, he could not believe how beautiful she was. And she says, oh, what a cute little boy and picks him up and puts her on her lap. And that's, I've told this. There's some Maria fanatics in the world, and I've told them this, and they want his address. They want to know where they can go meet the guy. I spared him that, uh, good old John, but I did put it in the book. It, there was just nothing about her. It was
0: hopeless. Yeah, it's amazing. Now, in your book itself, it's called, again the Queen of Technicolor, Maria Montez in Hollywood. An important part of that title is Technicolor. Would you explain to some of our audience what was the difference between Technicolor and other film processes, and why she so shined in that process?
1: Technicolor was originally was a two-color thing, and it just it looked kind of greenish all the time. It just didn't work well. But by the early thirties, in the mid thirties, especially, they developed so-called three-color Technicolor, and it was assaultively Colorful. Just fantastic. There's been nothing like it ever since. Incredibly expensive to use. The film was expensive. You had to have Technicolor technicians come on the set and work with it. Uh, You had to have special lighting, tons, unbelievable amounts of lighting uh, for the thing to work properly. But when it worked properly, reds were really red and blue was really blue. They were, it was just the most incredible thing. But it it went out of fashion because again, it was so expensive. Really in the, the 50s, it was pretty much gone.
0: Do you think it was uh, do you think it was because of your background as a well-known and distinguished photographer that the technicolor aspect of her caught your eye before she caught your eye?
1: That was part of it because I did start looking up her movies. And there was some stuff on the internet. Um, most all of her stuff became available on DVDs or CDs or whatever they call them. Anyway, th- those round things,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> and they became available. And, and they are beautifully produced because they really capture the technicolor of the mid-1940s. And they are gorgeous. And she did several things in black and white where she looked great. But for some reason in Technicolor, her skin tone—I don't know what it was—but for some reason in Technicolor, she was a knockout. Oh my God! Well, in and your so that it, was part of it,
0: in your opening, you were talking about how she had no discernible acting talent, and there were other liabilities as well, including her English, and yet she rose to this level. And what was fascinating too is her relationship. You write in your book between her and her father. And you think that's where that drive came from. And she didn't come from poverty. She came oh, from no. a wealthy family.
1: No, there's a great line in there about she was supposedly having an argument, a feud, as they used to call them, with a, an actress named Aquanetha And she says, that's ridiculous. You know, I'm the star of the movie. You know, she's one of the chorus girls kind of thing. And I, I would only have a feud with an important person because <laughs> I'm an important person. I come from important people. I've been important all my life. <laughs> and she was from a small town in what is Eastern Dominican Republic, Western Dominican Republic, that wasn't even connected to the capital until she was in her 20s it was just the most obscure back of the beyond kind of a place but she was from one of the very leading families and she marries a banker a key banker in the Dominican republic an irish guy and she is now part of the capital's top echelon of society that that's her old background and one of the one of the uh, hits on her is when she came to hollywood she saw the you know the uh, the lighting people and the makeup people and the dressing people as a bunch of servants, and that's kind of how she treated them, and that did not go over well. <laughs> I would <laughs> imagine,
0: yeah, I can the see whole the
1: whole egalitarian American thing just really did not register on her, and she had to be shown that this was not working. These people were really angry with her and didn't want to help her. And so that just makes everything 10 times worse, obviously.
0: Did she learn her lesson or did she continue? She
1: learned her lesson. Okay. You got to give her credit. She, she <laughs> and she really did try and learn English. She struggled and struggled, but, you know, to a little effect. But she did learn her lesson about treating people better. Absolutely.
0: Do you think she learned that lesson because she subsumed her elitist attitude for her ambition? She knew she had to get along with all these people and therefore, or was it, or, or was it legitimately she learned her lesson?
1: Well, legitimately she learned her lesson that if, if, the, if she was going to do well in Hollywood, she needed these people's help. She needed to look good in the makeup. She needed to have her hair done proper, all that kind of stuff. And in fact, some of them were sabotaging her. And so she figured out, wait a minute, and plus the columnists at the time, said, you know, there's these rumors about Montez, how she doesn't get along with anybody. And to say that to an American audience, they freak. You know, that she's treating them like peons. Well, you can't do that in America. That just doesn't work.
0: But it and sounds so- like you confirmed what I asked. In other words, she, yeah. she subsumed her her uh, elitist attitudes to her ambition and treated people better because she knew she had to to look as good as she could.
1: Exactly. Okay. And to, she had to, to get along to go along.
0: Right, right. No, exactly. And
1: she wanted nothing else in this world but to be a movie star, a bona fide American movie star. And then when that finally quit working, she moved to France with her husband, Jean-Pierre Amont, and became a bona fide French movie star and then a bona fide Italian movie
0: star. <laughs> Boy, she, she moved around. How many times was she married?
1: Twice. She was married to uh, a fellow named Mac Feeders. Uh This was the, the Irish banker that was very big in Dominican circles because he was the chief representative of the New York National Bank, which really helped to fund the Dominican Republic. So I mean, he was a very big deal. Uh, so in that regard, it was a great marriage. Who was Claude Strickland? Claude Strickland. And I go on quite a bit about him. He was a very important character. They were never married. He was an English stockbroker from one of the peerage families in England. And he had apparently come to New York in 1940, soon after she had arrived, to see the New York World's Fair and all that uh, in 1939. And so he did that. he went down to... uh, to Miami, traveled around. I mean, he's a very wealthy guy. And here he was on an extensive vacation to the U.S. And apparently somewhere in there, probably at a nightclub, she met Claude Strickland. And supposedly they were engaged. Now, there's I've never seen a photograph of them together. I've never seen you know a letter back and forth between them. I'm sure it just doesn't exist. But he was a very, and, and at the time, a lot of people said, he's this this some construct. He's made up by the publicity people to get her name in the paper. And they just dismissed him. But he was a very real guy. As soon as the war clouds really were gathering, he flew back to, to England, or took the ship back to England. And he was in England when war was declared. And he joined the RAF. He went active in the RAF at 30 years old. And he became a pilot, a fighter pilot, in the Battle of Britain, the whole nine yards. And he was eventually shot down and killed over Belgium. And so this was a very real guy that answered his country's call immediately. And he was as rich beyond measure. And back he went and he died. The only thing you have is she had photographs of him on her nightstand. And and that's the closest you can get. But it was a very big deal to me to show that this was a real guy and it's typical of the kind of man that she was interested in. Not some guy who's a playboy who wants to run around with women all over the place, but serious devoted guys that were European. <laughs> she never had a serious relationship with somebody from South, Central, or North America. Never. All the people that she was serious with and married and so on were all
0: Europeans. Now, there was one other guy that was very important to her. She wasn't married to him. It was Louis Schur.
1: Ah, the great Louis Schur.
0: Tell us about him. Louis
1: Schur was her agent. And she met him in a nightclub in New York and got all, because she, she was friends with all the maitre d's of the nightclubs. And they would call and tell her when some big important guy was there and sure was there. And she went down, dressed to the teeth, and caught his attention. <laughs> and I talked to a fellow who used to be an agent, eventually became a producer uh, in Hollywood, Lito, George Lito. Great guy. I knew his daughter and she introduced me. Anyway, I asked him, how did somebody that was as big a guy as Louis Scher sign Maria Montez? And he said, uh, was she beautiful? <laughs> oh God, he's gorgeous, and he says for Louis and for the rest of Hollywood in the 1940s that was plenty. <laughs> oh, it was great, God, and what? And he's the guy George Lido that introduced me to Raina Paris, the niece. So God bless him. he he's passed recently, but great guy.
0: There's a macro level to this story, and you open with it in your introduction to the book, and that is. She is, in a way, symbolic of the federal government's good neighbor policy to Latin America. And she ends up at the White House, invited by Eleanor Roosevelt. Tell us a little bit about that connection and why that happened the way it did. There were other actresses in Hollywood, such as Carmen Miranda, but she seemed to be the one that now people don't remember, but you have brought to life again. But there were others that were big stars at the time, too.
1: Well, Carmen Miranda was certainly the biggest. In fact, for at one time, she was the highest paid woman in all of America, Carmen Miranda. Uh, Mona Paris was another one. There were several that did smaller parts. Lupi Velez was still making movies. She regrettably committed suicide, uh, I think, in 43, somewhere in there. But Maria... Of all of them, took it the most seriously, because she again, this was sort of you the noblesse oblige that that this is what you did when you were an important person, is that you tried to help your own country get along better with the U.S. and to support the U.S. and the, the whole Allied war effort.
0: Yeah, that's and, the other part of it, Tom. Too is not only was she invited to the White House, but she was involved in touring for the troops and the bond effort. But I'll let you explain.
1: Well, she, she she there's a whole chapter on Maria's War. And Maria's War was not unlike the war of a lot of Hollywood actresses that you were expected, unless you were Greta Garbo, to, to go out to the bases, to talk to guys, to be available, to be a real human being to them. And she did that all the time. And sometimes it was covered in the press. Sometimes it was for the Hollywood Victory Committee, but a lot of times it was just because she was in an area making a movie where there was a base nearby and she would just go to the base and, you know, they'd have a dance and stuff and she'd dance with soldiers and talk to them and hang out. She could do that. She didn't have an act. She wasn't Frances Langford that can go there and just sing these great songs. She couldn't do that. Again, she could not act in her dance, <laughs> but she could dance nicely with the soldiers. And frankly, they could care less if she could keep a beat. <laughs> I bet <laughs> they were holding on to Maria Montez. Yawsa,
0: Go <laughs> <The> army. <laughs> yeah, she was. A, she was a part of that war effort, and, and she so clearly, ends, she ends up in the White House.
1: Completely. There's and the a, whole deal with with the good neighbor policy. You know, the United States government wanted to make nice with Latin America, because there was just tension galore with them, because we were this huge power, and they were not. And so we absolutely lorded it over them. There's just no question. So they tried to make up for that. And they made some movies with Latin themes, Argentine nights and stuff like that, that were just so stupidly ethnocentric. And it made the Latins crazy angry. Because they were just made to look, oh, they were lovers, and and they were very emotional, and they embraced each other all the time, and they just looked kind of stupid. And the hero of the story was always some Anglo guy that came down there to set them straight and unscrew them. So, but what they did like was just the better American movies, and that's what was incredibly popular. And the movie companies, in fact, built theaters all over Latin America. And they wired for sound other theaters that still had just silent films. So they did all that to try and help the war effort. And Maria did broadcasts in Spanish. Anytime any kind of Spanish person was coming to uh, Los Angeles, they were always taken out to the Universal lot, and she hung out with them. She really made an effort to be, in fact, part of this so-called good neighbor policy. And what Latin people liked about her is she never made fun of her accent. When Carmen Miranda went back to Brazil in the early 40s, 42, I think it was, she was actually booed because she made fun of her accent and the whole Latinus and just being crazy and all that all the time. And it really bent them out of shape. Maria absolutely never, ever, not once did that. Ever. She saw herself as the representative, again, a very important person, a representative of Latin America, specifically the Dominican Republic. And that's how she carried herself.
0: What was her relationship with other quote unquote stars of that era? Did you get along with them in Hollywood, some particularly? Some yes, and some no.
1: Very serious actresses like Gail Sondergaard thought she was like an idiot. <laughs> thought she was just living on, you know, some Planet Nine thing and just never, ever got her. Yvonne Carlo, on the other hand, who was brought in to be a threat to Maria as an exotic, as they used to say, because she was had was half Sicilian. Yvonne DiCarlo just thought she was great. And because she was so eccentric... And she really believed that she had been alive during the Mayan period and been a, a princess and all that stuff in the Mayan period and had some piece of cloth that she said came from that era. And Yvonne DiCarlo says she just looked at the cloth and looked kind of amazed. It you know, had to be like a thousand years old, but it looked brand new. And so Yvonne just went along with the program. She just enjoyed how crazy Maria was. And that was fine with her. So it, it really... Mad Differed. It was the actress named Ann Wynn, uh, who probably almost nobody remembers anymore. But but she said that she she was also signed by Universal about the same time Maria was, and she says she just went along with everything Universal asked of her. She said if she had been stronger like Maria, and argued and fought all the time, she would have had a better career. So it really depended.
0: Yeah, I mean it could have gone the other way. She could argue with the studio. Studio could said, Okay, well we're gonna put you on waivers or loan you out to some other studio. Well waiver.
1: eventually that is what happened. Yeah. They didn't put her out they didn't put her out on waivers. They just were waiting for the seven year contract to be over with. And they didn't make any effort to keep her.
0: Before I let you go, tell us about her connection with the Neverland movies.
1: <laughs> well, that was my title for them. That and the uh the pinup industrial complex. I love that. <laughs> she was very much a part of the pinup industrial complex. It's for the boys. <laughs> and plus she was selling herself through her body, which was you know fantastic, frankly. You,
0: you point out in the book that she did not like to wear bras.
1: And the really bizarre thing for that time, she talked about it all the time. Now there was other what you did. Jean Harlow, for instance, in the 30s, same deal. But she didn't talk about it. Montez talked about it all the time. I don't wear ears, thank God. And, and it's very evident from the photos that she did not <laughs> and didn't like them. And that that moved her up because it got her in all these columns. That's She just uh, wanted to appear crazy and willing to do anything because in fact she was she was 28 <laughs> years old when she came to hollywood 28 that's like middle aged for a, an ingenue in those days certainly
0: now it's so, old now it's like, old age in hollywood
1: oh yeah and so of course they made her 20 <laughs> universal <laughs> day. but anyways um, she was she just used what she had and what she had was this very engaging, crazy personality, a spectacular physicality. And she was in pinup after pinup after pinup and and talked about it all the time, about how the soldiers loved her.
0: <laughs> Let's leave it with your recommendation for her best movie.
1: Well, then you asked about The Neverland. That's just what I call it. It's these six Technicolor movies that she made within a couple of years, two and a half years in Hollywood, just kind of one right after the other. And they were all the same movie, basically. Some were in the South Seas, some were in in Arabia, but it was the same movie.
0: So you're saying that series was the best that you did?
1: Oh, by far. Okay. Oh, by far. Because they spent some money for once, and that's not known at Universal. (laughs) But they spent money to make these things look good, to go on location, and they are fabulous to look at. And they were the perfect movie for the time. Because the worst war in the history of the human race was going on. And this was a total war. This isn't these these idiot things we keep getting ourselves involved in now. This was a war for our national existence and everybody knew it. And people wanted to go to a movie and forget about it for 90 minutes.
0: Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Tom Zimmerman. He's written the first book length biography of this cultural icon. The Queen of Technicolor, Maria Montez in Hollywood, published by the University Press of Kentucky and available at Amazon and all the usual places. Tom, thanks for being on the show. Oh, it's
1: Michael. This is fun.
0: And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.